Our scripture for this morning uh, confronts us with two sayings of Jesus that have historically been either uh, difficult to understand and or misinterpreted. In this short section, we have both that odd moment, like I was just mentioning, when Jesus tells his closest disciples not to tell anyone that he is the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited Christ, anointed one of God. And then we also have the famous teaching of Jesus that all of his followers are required to bear their own cross daily. Each of these sayings uh, can be perplexing on their own. Luke compounds the issues for us by placing them together. Through the years, I have had plenty of difficulties understanding what Jesus is after with these words. But coming around to them again this time in Luke, I actually think that his setting them side by side helps us to understand both. Each in their own way, in their own way, reveal Jesus defining a way of life. First, the way of life for himself. Um, and then, as consequence, the way of life for those who wish to follow him. And as we'll see, I don't think we could find a more timely scripture for where we are as a society in the U.S. today than what we hear this morning. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have to let Jesus define our way of life. And it is very different from the way that our society defines it. Our scene opens with Jesus and his closest friends sharing this quiet moment together. Uh, Jesus has been praying and something in that time of prayer prompts him to ask his friends uh, what the popular opinion is of him. Uh, he, he asks them, who, who did the crowds say I am? And uh, clearly he's been making an impression on people given to whom they liken him. They replied, some say that you are John the Baptist. Uh, others say Elijah. And still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Each of these people that he's being compared to or likened to had been an influential messenger of God for God's people. So uh, he's had this impact on people and popular opinion puts him in the same category as John the Baptist, Elijah, these significant figures. But Jesus has invested far more time with the 12 closest disciples. They've traveled with him. They've watched him day after day. They've seen more and heard more from him than anyone else. And so Jesus, again, maybe prompted by something that happened during his time of prayer, Jesus asks them directly. Verse 20 who do you say that I am? What about you? Who do you say that I am? And in fact, 
in the Greek, it, it, the very first word of the sentence is you. Who do you say that I am? It's fine for what the people are saying, but I want to know, those of you who know me best, who do you say that I am? Peter responds, as he often does, as the voice for all the, the twelve. And his response is astonishing. He says, the Christ of God, the Messiah, the anointed one. And it's important that we pause here and remember the backstory on this. The Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed one who was to appear had become, like I was saying, almost a mythical character, almost like our superhero of today. He would be the one to break the grip of Roman oppression on God's people. The Messiah would reclaim the throne of King David, return Israel to a world power, and after centuries of exile and humiliation, God's kingdom would return to its glory. Peter is saying to Jesus, we believe you are him, that you are the anointed one of God, the one we have been as a people, as God's people have been waiting for for centuries. Maybe it just dawned on Peter for the first time in that moment. Maybe it was the first time any one of the 12 had actually said it out loud. But they, they, in that moment, they believe that Jesus is the one. Now, again, could you imagine the incredible excitement and thrill it would be to believe that you are with, you're standing right in front of you, is this mythical super person that God has anointed to, to make all of your wildest hopes for your people come true. But <laughs> Jesus immediately throws a sopping wet wool blanket on these little sparks that are just about to fire up, and he just puts it out completely. He says, and it's uh, put this way, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. Why? Here, after all these centuries, again, he's right here, but he doesn't want them to tell anyone. There are a few different ideas for why it is Jesus shuts them down so quickly and thoroughly. But I think the most important reason is because Jesus knows that the common perception of what God's anointed one will be like is completely misguided. It's wrong. The Messiah is not going to be a Rabbi Rambo. The the Messiah is not going to lead the 12 disciples in a violent overthrow of the evil empire like Gandalf leading the Fellowship of the Ring, overthrowing evil Sauron. <laughs> Jesus is the Messiah. 
But God's kingdom returning to its glory looks nothing like what everyone had expected. In fact, he tells them what it's going to look like, and it must have shocked them. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, and he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, all of the people who should be the ones who most clearly recognize Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, and who welcome him, they are going to reject him, he says, and he says he's going to be killed. Yes, he goes on to say on the third day, be raised to to life, but I doubt that they were even processing anything beyond the Messiah is going to be killed. He was going to return to the throne of King David and, and live in power. Nothing about Jesus's way of leading has anything to do with traditional understandings of power and strength. And yet, that is the way of Jesus, God's Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed one. The way of Christ is the way of nonviolence to the point of self-sacrifice. We heard that in the Hebrew First Testament reading from Isaiah. This way of nonviolence, this suffering servant, had always been present in God's teaching about the anointed one. I mean, again, here some of these these ways of being describing him. He was beaten, tortured, he did, but he didn't say a word, like a lamb taken to be slaughtered, like a sheep being sheared. He took it all in silence. Justice miscarried. He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten, bloody for the sins of my people. It just goes on and on about him suffering and taking on the, the violence of the world that should be directed towards others, him taking it on himself. That has, had always been present in God's teaching about the Messiah, and yet it wasn't really heard until Jesus lived it and revealed it. Yet, once Jesus revealed this way of nonviolence as the way of God, it became the way of life for his followers as well. And that's what connects Jesus's teaching about cross-bearing with Jesus's admission about his own death on the cross. In verses 22 and 23, Jesus says, um, I will have to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, killed and on the third day raised to new life. And then he said to them all, to all, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Follow me. Through the centuries since Jesus said this, many people have misconstrued these words of Jesus about 
bearing a cross as a call to endure suffering of all sorts, as if that was God's plan, is that people would, that God would actually give them suffering to bear daily. But execution by crucifixion, the carrying of the cross, is a representative of that. Execution by crucifixion was specifically a Roman punishment for people Rome viewed as a threat to their established way of ruling the people of the empire. Anyone bearing a cross did so because they were working against the Roman way of power and oppression. By acknowledging, Jesus acknowledging the dignity of all human beings, healing the ill, exalting the poor, giving hope to the outcasts, Jesus challenged Rome's systemic oppression and the acceptance of this system by his own religious leaders. Therefore, for followers of Christ, to bear their own cross meant for them as well to speak and act against the established order of Rome as well. Working for the freedom and well-being of all human beings, especially the poor and oppressed, not through violent means, but through love and service to others. Justo Gonzalez, a Cuban-American theologian, sums things up well here. He writes, throughout the gospel, Jesus has been teaching a different way and a different measure of success. The last shall be first. The least are the greatest. The poor own the kingdom of God. The hungry will be fed. Woe to the successful, to the rich, and to the full. Now he applies the same measure to his own ministry and messiahship, which he redefines in terms that are as contradictory of common wisdom as is the declaration that the poor are blessed. The redefinition of messiahship immediately leads to a redefinition of discipleship. It is to this path that Jesus calls his disciples in inviting them to take up their cross and follow him. It is a path of self-denial, but not of meaningless resign or passive suffering. It is a path of opposition to all that is evil, even though that evil may appear respectable and even legal. It is a path of solidarity with all those who suffer under the present order of the world, of suffering with them. In fact, one might even say that it is a path of taking up their crosses, the crosses that people are made to bear by the existing order, and thus relieving them of their suffering and oppression. So this idea of bearing our cross isn't just taking our own suffering, whatever that is, an illness or a um, particular relative <laughs> that's difficult to deal with. It, in some ways, is almost literally taking up someone else's cross. 
because of the evil that's being perpetrated to them. Peter was right when he identified Jesus as God's Messiah. Jesus is God's anointed one, come to earth to set things right. But Jesus' way of doing that was not what people expected. Jesus didn't come in vengeance with violence. He came in love with self-sacrifice. And as followers of Christ, this must be our way of life as well, not vengeance with violence, but love and self-sacrifice. In my life, I don't know if there has ever been a time when it has been more important for those who claim to be Christians to follow this way of Jesus. The violence in our society has reached absurd levels. Within the first three weeks of this year, there have been 39 mass shootings. In three weeks, 39, which means a sh an, an occurrence where at least four people were shot. Firearms, firearm injuries are the leading cause of death in the United States for people under the age of 24. There are over 390 million private guns in the United States. That's more than, it's, it works out to be something like there are 120 guns for every 100 citizens. And for the first time in the history of our country, the last transfer of presidential power was not peaceful. It was violent. More and more every day, it seems that the way people want to settle disagreements in this country is to shoot it out. Before, before I left on my trip to Columbia, several people asked me if they thought it was safe for me to travel to Columbia. Honestly, I was far safer there than I am right now in the United States. I'm far more likely to be shot here than I was there. And it's not just explicit violence that plagues our culture. Our whole economic and judicial system violently oppresses millions in our country in ways that we don't like to acknowledge. Again, Justo Gonzalez puts it this way. For many of us, violence is limited to acts of violence, to strike or kill another, to take up arms against others. But we are less likely to recognize that there are also states of violence. This is particularly difficult to see for those of us who seldom suffer under such states. In a state of violence, people die not because someone kills them directly, but because the social order is such that it leads to death. Thus, if a child is killed by a robber, we see the violence in that act. But if a child dies of hunger, we don't see the violence in the order that has led to that child's death. And yet both are equally violent. 
This means that true nonviolence involves opposition both to acts of violence and to states of violence. Mere passive abstention from acts of violence, while states of violence continue unchallenged, is not true nonviolence. Rather, it is a hidden participation in and often a benefiting from states of violence. For followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to better than this. Jesus himself not only refused to act in violence towards others, he actively worked against the states of violence that caused so much harm to so many others. His way of life so threatened those who held power that they killed him for it. And, truthfully, Jesus calls us as his disciples to follow him in this way of life. As followers of Christ, we must allow Jesus to identify, to, excuse me, to define our way of living, not the world. So the Apostle Paul gets the last word here. He puts it like this in that letter to the Roman followers of Christ. Here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for God. Don't become so well-adjusted to our culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God, on Jesus and the way of Jesus. You will be changed. We will be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what God wants from us and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around us, always dragging us down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of us, develops well-informed maturity in us. Thanks be to God.